0: That nothing we desire compares with Him. Is that true? Let's be sure when we sing songs, it's true to our own hearts. Amen. What a challenge today. What a challenge already. So let's go to the Lord now, and let's ask Him to help us to understand His Word and to apply it and to more greatly appreciate Him now than ever before. Times are tough, but the Lord is in charge of it all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the God that you are. And Lord, you are indeed more precious than silver. You're more costly than gold. Nothing we desire compares with you far and away, Lord. I pray now, Lord, as we wait before you and that your Holy Spirit would open your word to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to give you our hearts. We thank you, Father, for what you're going to do here in this place help us to to take it in and then to live it out in Jesus name amen well this morning i want to immediately dive into scripture it's a very pleasurable thing to do isn't it especially when we read of a father imploring his son to do what our heavenly father wants all of his people down through the ages to do but i want to today just for a moment to to read from a different translation of scripture than what we're always used to to reading here at the pulpit, which is the ESV. Because for whatever reason, this translation fits the original wording of, of what I'm about to say, what I'm about to share, a little bit better than the ESV. In his zeal to protect one of his sons from sexual immorality, Solomon says to him in Proverbs 23:26, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, about the most accurate Bible on the planet, He said, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. What a great passage that is, isn't it? Now, it's very appropriate that we begin the message this way, given our passage for today. See, our heavenly father, who is also the divine king of Israel, said the same thing to Solomon, or as Solomon said to his son, for about the same reason. Solomon says to his son, give me your heart. Delight in my ways so that you might withstand the temptation to commit sexual immorality. As we're going to see today in our passage, Yahweh told Israel, give me your heart. Delight in my ways so that they might withstand the temptation to commit spiritual immorality. We know that as idolatry, spiritual adultery. Deuteronomy 29, 1 to 29 is our passage for today. It's found on page 190 in your pew Bible if you need that number. Now, this chapter is sort of laid out like a summary statement of the treaty that Yahweh desires to make with Israel. We've seen a lot of detail concerning this treaty, this sworn covenant throughout our time in Deuteronomy. And so because of this, we're not going to go verse by verse in this chapter. But I want to point out here two eternal truths in this passage that we can take and we can apply to our lives today. I'll introduce them to you now, and then I'm going to get into a little bit more detail a little bit later on. The first eternal truth that I find here is what I call a theocentric view of life. It's two words. Theo, meaning God, and centric means God's in the middle of everything. See, God is in the center of everything that happens. Isn't that true? See, back in Moses' day, not only Israel, but everybody wore a a set of what I call a divine set of lenses through which they saw everything, whether incredibly good circumstances or incredibly devastating and bad circumstances, and all points in between as coming from the direct activity of God. The supernatural was at the very center of their lives. But in our day, we have to work at having a theocentric vision of life, don't we? See, we've been well-trained in our culture to see what is in front of us without God, that this is the end-all and be-all. Why is it that so many in our culture claim atheism, and then when they die, that's it? They think they're nothing more than worm food. Because for them, this life is all there is. Spiritual things to them are nonsensical. In other words, they can't sense it, and therefore they are indeed nonsense. This is literally the way so many people think. For them, there must be a naturalistic explanation to everything. For example, the weather is described in terms like tectonic plate movements. and We will call that earthquakes. And solar activity. We will call that climate change. But inspired scripture writers describes thunder during severe thunderstorms and and storms as what? The voice of the Lord. Yahweh asked Job if he's ever entered into the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail. Of course, this is figurative language, but the point ought to be clear. The scripture writers had a theocentric vision of life. And we're going to take a brief look at how Moses utilized that theocentric vision of life to encourage Israel to give praise to the Lord and that we can take a clue from them and we may be challenged to cultivate a theocentric vision of life as well. The second eternal truth that I want to point out in Deuteronomy 29 today is what I'm convinced is not only the heart of this passage, but also really is at what the heart of the issue when it comes to one's relationship with the true and living God at any place, at any time, for all time. I believe this embodies the heart of it all right here in this passage. As we will see, the Lord continually asks people, sinful creatures, his imagers, one question. The question is, will you give me your heart? Now, in full disclosure, we're going to see this this question posed as a warning given to those who claim to be his people and then refuse to give him their heart. And then we're going to jump over into the New Testament and we're going to see the same thing. There where Yahweh in the flesh deals with the heart as well. So that's where we're going today in God's word. As I mentioned, we're not going to go verse by verse in this chapter. We're going to simply summarize portions of this word today. So in verses 1 through 8 of our passage, the chapter deals with, as it does say in verse 1, the words of the covenant Moses is to make in the land of Moab besides the one he made with them at Horeb. In other words, this is a renewal of the original covenant that Yahweh through Moses gave his people a generation ago. Now, it's important we keep this in mind as we go through this today, for the Lord places an emphasis on individuals in the nation, and not merely stating a blanket coverage, as it were, in relation to the covenant. In other words, or in the words of a well-worn but valuable statement, God has no grandchildren, only children. See, every generation, each family, each person must decide for himself or herself to give his heart or her heart to the Lord, even though Moses addresses all the people of Israel at one time. In verses 2 to 8, we come to the first of our eternal truths, for God's people to have a theocentric vision of life. In verses 2 to 3, Moses reminds the people about all that the Lord did in Egypt. How he delivered them by means of great trials, his devastating signs and wonders he performed to take his chosen people out of the iron furnace, as he calls it, that they would be his people. Then in verses five to eight, Moses reminds them of how the Lord took care of them over the past 40 years and even better than expected. He gave them manna, but not regular bread. He gave them water for their most, from the most unusual places. Like rocks, true? But he didn't give them wine or strong drink. These would come later when they would actually settle into the land of promise. And an amazing thing this is. For 40 years, Israel did not spend one moment at the local Walmart searching for clothes or clothing or shoes. See, God made it so that nothing that they wore, wore out for four decades. Do you have any clothes in your closet It's four decades old? The Lord, though, not only provided for the material needs, though, he gave them military victory. So much battle-hardened experience was needed, along with the confidence that they really could defeat the enemy. Because what were they getting ready to do? Go and battle the enemy. And who was the enemy that God put them up against? It was actually two enemies. One was the Amorites. Another was an army led by a giant. His name is Og. Don't you love that name? Og, whose iron bed was 13 by 6 feet. This man was huge. See, a California king bed had nothing on this one. And after the conquest, Israel took their land fair and square. So Israel owned land even before they entered the land. Isn't God good? Wasn't he good to them? But if you follow closely, you may have noticed that I skipped a verse as in verse 4. So let's read that now. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Hmm, it's a puzzlement. Now we look at that and we read it and we scratch our heads. See, we're saying the Lord has not given them a spiritual heart or spiritual eyes or spiritual ears to appreciate what He's done for them. What do we make of this? Why would God seemingly make them unable to understand that it was he who did these things on their behalf? Well, frankly, I have a real problem with that notion that God prevented them somehow from appreciating what he did for them. See, this entire chapter is dedicated to encourage Israel to trust Almighty Yahweh who has provided for them. They're getting ready to enter into a covenant of full commitment. How then can people read this and conclude that the Lord has prevented them from appreciating these things? See, if anything, that would be a disincentive, wouldn't it? For Israel to make a covenant with Yahweh without their appreciation for what he's done. Remember what we just read and studied in chapter 28. We're talking curse after curse after curse after curse. See, these were a that this was a massive list of these curses. That the Lord would heap on them if they failed to obey him. So why would God want to prevent having them appreciate these things? Well, I have a rebuttal against that idea. Author Earl Callan wrote a really good book about Deuteronomy and he commented about this very passage. So let me give a couple of general points and then do a little paraphrase of one of his major points here. Callan reminds the one reading his book that Moses urged Israel to make a total commitment to the lord after all they were getting ready to to launch into much hardship in taking the land they had to go into battle after battle and so moses gave a nutshell review of just some of what god had provided to encourage them toward a heart of total commitment to him and then caled says this and i'll paraphrase it: when moses said god has not given you a spiritual heart or eyes or ears he was simply stating what was common knowledge in their world. Everybody thought that God was the ultimate source of everything. And this is where my statement, theocentric vision of life comes into play. Everything was attributed to the Lord, whether good or bad. Natural calamity, the Lord did it. Abundant harvest, the Lord gave it. See, Job had this point of view as well. See, Job was likely written around Abraham's time, which is around 400 years prior to this. Did he not say after he lost everything, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. But really, in in reality, who took it away? It wasn't the Lord. It was Satan. But he had this theocentric vision of life. And so with this in mind, we can understand Moses' statement in verse 4 was something like this. In light of what the Lord has done for us, look around, take it in, look beneath the surface of what we have. Fully appreciate that it is Yahweh alone who provided for us. Do you not think that our deliverance out of Egypt did not come from the Lord's hand? Have you so quickly forgotten that even our next meal of manna and water came directly from the Lord? Is it mere coincidence that the clothes and the sandals that all of us are wearing haven't worn out for 40 years? As I mentioned earlier, it's a bit more difficult today to have a theocentric vision of life, isn't it? But cultivate it. We must. Otherwise, here's a guarantee, the world will deceive us. Now take that to the bank and make that a deposit along with the rest of our Monopoly money because that's about how much our money is worth nowadays. And that's why we need regular refreshment in his word. That's why we need to pray. We need to turn our attention to the giver of the blessings and the one that we are to show our love to by obedience. Consistent meditation on him and living out his ways is imperative to cultivate a theocentric vision. Even as simple as a thing as what Kathy says to those who ask her to pray, she always tells them, did you thank God for waking you up this morning? Isn't that great? Or for Brother Greg, when, during, when he was corporate uh, worship leader last week, he told us the first thing he does when he gets out of bed is pray. And lately he's felt the need to get on his knees to show his humility before the Lord. But the key to the first eternal truth is to cultivate a theocentric vision of life. God is the center. Man is not. Not culture, and not even food shortages, (laughs) manufacture otherwise, or even the so-called great reset. But God is in the center. Now let me summarize verses 9 to 17. Moses now addresses the people in front of him like this. All y'all, the most influential, to the least of you, the most senior to the littlest kid, and even Gentiles who want to become part of our nation, keep the words of the covenant. We're talking an ongoing keeping here. You're making a pledge today to enter into a sworn covenant so that Yahweh will be your God and you will be his people. The Lord promised not only you who are standing here today, but all the way back to Father Abraham, that yes, he indeed would be our God. And Moses continues. Now, some of you remember how when we lived in Egypt and then passing through the nations on our way here, how you saw the nations' detestable objects of worship, even though some of them were made of the finest silver and gold. So what was Moses saying here? Two things. First, though he was addressing the entire nation, he emphasized individuals in the nation, regardless of status regardless of age, regardless of sex, regardless of ethnicity, all of you and each of you are going to pledge yourselves to enter into the suzerain vassal treaty with the king of the universe. Each and every one of them was to pledge himself or herself in one's heart to loyalty to Yahweh alone. And those these verses don't actually mention the heart specifically. Hang on a second, and we're going to cover that. The second thing I see Moses doing is the emphasis he places on the moment. I find it instructed that no less than six times in this chapter in relation to this, Moses says today in in reference to Yahweh and Israel entering into the covenant. In other words, the Lord is all about specifics when it comes to entering into a covenant relationship. Intentionality is what we're talking about. See, each imager of God needs to give the Lord his or her heart in time and space. And for those who have experienced, for example, rare indeed is a person who has absolutely no recollection of his or her wedding day. Isn't that true? All of us remember where we were and when that happened and how that happened. The point is that when one must intentionally enter into a relationship with the Lord, responding to his call for salvation. And we're going to see more of that in a little bit. So in summing up this section, let me quote for you some beautiful words from another learned man who studies Deuteronomy for a living, if you can imagine that. His name is Peter Craigie, and he says, God, in sovereignty and grace, initiated the relationship, and in so doing, committed himself in a promise to the chosen people. The people's obligation to commit themselves in the covenant was based not simply on law or demand, but it was based on a response of love for the purpose of the covenant relationship elicited such a response. Now let's think about this for a second. Think about where we are in the divine record. In this place, we are, we are studying the law of God. The law. This is Old Testament. See, love and grace aren't supposed to be here, are they? As so many people mistakenly understand. Now, love and grace are supposed to be here, though, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that true? But that's New Testament truth, isn't it? Yes, and it's also Old Testament truth as well. There is really no discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. Now, in this next section, verses 18 to 21, we will see. What I believe and I'm convinced is the second eternal truth that we find in this passage. So follow along as I read verses 18 to 21. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now he's going to describe this one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. It's pretty heavy stuff. But did you hear it? Did you hear God asking, My people, one by one, give me your hearts"? Did you hear it? You might be thinking, Pastor, you're confused. The Lord did not say that. Oh, but he did. Remember at the beginning of the message, I said that the Lord's request would be couched in a word of warning. Let's read the end of verse 18 and beginning of verse 19 again. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What's are always saying through Moses? In essence, it's this. I swear to you all of my faithfulness. I offer to be your God. I enter into a covenant relationship with you. And your part is to enter into a loyal relationship with me. And what does that look like? When an individual enters into a relationship with the Lord, but just the opposite of what we just read. See, that person hears the words of Yahweh and gives him his or her heart. He or she will not walk in the stubbornness of his or her heart. That's what it means to enter into a loyal covenant relationship with the Lord. Again, not perfect, but loyal. So let me briefly highlight two things here in relation to this. First, the word stubbornness is pretty much straightforward. We we sort of understand that word, don't we? It's a hardness. It's a solid commitment in a given direction of one's way of life. This person cannot be deterred from the left or to the right. He has a rock-solid commitment to whatever he or she is living for. We can see this in terms of a simple lifestyle, for example. Say one is committed to pornography, and when confronted with it, he simply says, "I enjoy it. I love it. I can't get enough of it." And regardless of what anybody says, he just goes along with it and gets deeper into it. What would we call that stubborn. And I'm sure in his more sane moments, he would say the same thing. On the other hand, they say a person is committed to Jesus. He, a former atheist. Became a Christian three years after he got married to his also atheist wife. Twenty years later, she now berates him, disrespects him, and does all manner of evil against him, and he is still faithful to Jesus. She would call him what? Stubborn, along with all her friends. Now, what do Yahweh mean when he said heart? Heart. We usually think of emotions, and that's about it. But in Moses' day, the heart was considered as any part of the person that was not physical. Whether it was the mind, the will, the emotions, attitudes, orientations, inclinations—you name it—that was the heart. It was a catchword. If it was not a hand or a foot or the eye, that was the heart. So what do we have here? Many Israelites on the day they entered to the covenant gave their heart to the Lord they yielded their thoughts their will their emotions their attitudes their orientations inclinations in short every immaterial part of who they were to the ways of Yahweh now of course when they gave their heart to the Lord everything else about them went with it right their past achievements and limitations and failures their present direction and lifestyle their future plans all of this and more is what's meant when the individual Israelites gave their heart to the Lord. But there were some who did not give their heart to the Lord. They refused to hand their heart over to him. They heard the Lord pledge his faithfulness and provision and protection to the nation. And those who did give their heart would say, amen, because they were now in a love relationship with Yahweh. But those who kept their heart back probably said amen as well to kind of go along with the crowd. And like the rest of the nation, this person appreciated what Yahweh provided and pledged. See, he would certainly delight in the Lord's blessings. Anybody would. He even would proclaim a blessing upon himself. And he would say, I'm going to be safe from the curses of Yahweh. See, he reasons to himself because Yahweh is faithful. I'm exempt from his curses. Out of his goodness, he's not going to punish me. And I'm okay because I'm part of God's people. But this person has entered the deception zone. He has no idea what awaits him. See, he expects the blessing and the provision and the protection of God. But he is stubbornly committed to his own ways. And In the context of his ways, that includes at least spiritual adultery. Can you see the problem here? Let me make it more explicit. As I've said so often, the best picture of Yahweh's relationship with his people is that of a marriage, Old and New Testament. And any healthy marriage, what is present? It's jealousy, isn't it? Every husband and wife has an element of jealousy in any healthy marriage. Now, jealousy has become, though, a very negative word in relation to marriage. We usually think of those who abuse their wife and their husband. We often equate jealousy with being overbearing or suspicious or uber-controlling. See, how many crimes of passion are really motivated by wicked jealousy of the spouse or significant other? See, the Lord is jealous over his people as well, but he's not overbearing, is he? He's not suspicious. He's not uber-controlling. I came across one of the best... Descriptions I've ever heard in relation to proper jealousy. It simply goes like this. It is an appropriate desire for what a person has the right to. Appropriate desire for what they have the right to. In every marriage, a husband pledges himself to his wife and vice versa. In an exclusive relationship, anything that threatens the exclusivity of a healthy marriage will bring out proper jealousy. And rightly so. Would you agree with that? But when it comes to the ones who hear the words of Yahweh's pledge to Israel and refuse to give him their heart, the Lord's jealousy is aroused. Because of his relationship to the nation, the Lord has the right to the heart of the one who refuses to give it. And what's the result? What would Yahweh do to this one? He keeps back from Yahweh his heart. Let's read again verse 20. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. So what is supposed to be a commitment of love and loyalty between Yahweh and the suzerain and Israel as his vassals ends up for some individuals being marked out by the Lord for destruction. And not only that, but tragically, disloyalty is contagious. And the rest of the chapter is an extremely sordid, prophetic warning about how devastating wickedness is. And at the top of that list is idolatry, spiritual adultery. So let me give a brief word about verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law, literally this Torah. Simply put, we're not to speculate on how bad it could be should God's people continue to rebel. Or even how good it would be should all of God's people, the wayward, return to him. We're not on that need-to-know roster. But what we do know is what the Lord has revealed to us. And why has he revealed these things to us? That we might loyally live out his ways. Teach these to our children and pass on a godly legacy. I'm reminded of Steve Green's song. Maybe some of you remember Steve Green back in the day. You know, he sang a song in the 80s, I think. It's called Find Us Faithful. And the chorus goes like this. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the light of our, the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave, lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all that come behind us find us faithful. See, this is what the Lord was after for his people. And it is only possible if Israel, individual by individual, answers his call. Give me your heart. Now, if a love and loyalty relationship was the heart of the covenant between Yahweh and his people in the Old Testament, can we expect anything less in the New Testament? Will we expect Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, to desire the same thing from his followers? If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we would say, indeed, yes. And I would say that we have, we have thoroughly understood the issue of a love relationship with God, haven't we? In fact, it seems that the only thing that we know concerning God, that God loves us and we love him and that's it, right? But let's describe Love, the way the Bible describes it, shall we? Let's turn to one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, John 3.16. Even though you know it, I encourage you to, to go there. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So let's break this down. Now, we know this passage so well, you may have missed a few things here along the way. First, notice the context. In talking with Nicodemus, Jesus reminded him of a story in Numbers chapter 21 where the people, again, were grumbling, and they were doing it very well. So well, in fact, that God had enough of it, and he lifted his hand of protection, and he allowed very poisonous snakes to enter into the camp of over, of over a million people. Many of them died for what was entered to them. Well, where did the grumbling of the people suddenly go? It went away, quick, fast, and in a hurry. And it was replaced by anguish. Moses, we're dying here. What are we going to do? Well, the Lord told Moses to cast a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and go throughout the camp and cry out, look and live, look and live. See, in this passage, Jesus actually likens himself in this context, to the serpent on the pole. Just like the serpent in the camp was despised, but was the only way of salvation, so Jesus, as the one who would be despised and rejected of men, was to be lifted up on a pole, on a cross, and whoever would look upon the despised one, trusting him for salvation, would not perish eternally. And it's this context that Jesus gives one of the most famous and well-known pronouncements. And it literally goes like this. For God loved the world like this. He loved the world after this manner. He gave his one unique son that whoever believes in him would not perish eternally but have eternal life. So what does it mean to believe? We need to know that because it is key to not perishing. See, John the Apostle gives us a clue about what this means in this passage. Look down to John 3.36. At the end of the chapter, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the question, what does belief in Jesus and obedience to Jesus have to do with one another? It almost seems like they're mutually exclusive. Well, the answer lies in the identity and the authority to the one whom John the apostle referred. And that's Jesus. See, Jesus pulled no punches about his identity. Can I get a witness on that? We're familiar with statements like, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. And later on in New Testament letters, Paul says this about the resurrected, ascended Lord in Colossians 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And after Christ's death and resurrection, Right before he went back to the Father's right hand, Jesus told his apostles in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I went to school and I learned something. All means all. And that's all all means. All of it, heaven and earth, he had it. It was given to him by the Father. So who is Jesus? Simply put, Yahweh in the flesh. As Yahweh in the flesh, the Father gave him All authority in heaven and earth with the right to call to every person, give me your heart. And I'd like for you now to turn with me to one of the most powerful statements the Lord ever gave about his desire to dwell among his people and that Jesus tells his disciple the interconnection between heart and relationship, almighty authority, and incredible intimacy in John chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. So please turn there, John chapter 14. Verses 23 and 24, we're talking here intimacy. We're talking here desire to dwell among his people. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. My friends, did you hear those words? Almighty God wants to live in a love relationship with fallen, though redeemed people. But here's the caveat. There is no relationship, no intimacy, no dwelling with a person without love. And how is love spelled here? O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience. And by the way, there's no joy without obedience either. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 9 and 10, these words, as the father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Well, if I was disciples, I would say, how do I abide in his love? And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice this, just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. What gave Jesus the greatest joy in life? Keeping his Father's commandments. And now I figure if Jesus' highest joy was keeping the Father's commandments, then the same would apply to you and to me as well. Agree? But once again, I can't obey the Lord in the way he wants if I've not given him my heart. And finally, our eternal destiny rides on whether people give the Lord Jesus their heart. And Before we go to our final passage today, let me remind you of what I said last week in regard to the curses that the Lord would pull out pour out on his people should they live a lifestyle of disobedience. We're not talking about a one-done thing here, a lifestyle of disobedience. All the curses in the Old Testament were temporal. They had to do with this life only. Many would die a physical death directly related to the curses, and all of them die because of the one curse that he curses all with, and that is death. But in the New Testament, when Jesus opened up the kingdom of God, all the curses now became eternal. Last week, we saw Jesus, son of man, on his throne as dividing the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Remember his declaration to the goats. Depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's an eternal curse. This week, let's turn to Matthew 7, 21 and 23. let me state the obvious, Then something that we may have overlooked again because we know the passage so well. The people standing before the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day are religious folks. They called him Lord, and they've repeated it for emphasis. The people standing before him did powerful religious works in his name. And then the Lord tells them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, most of us fail to take in the rest of the statement for a variety of reasons, and so we camp out on the part that says, Jesus says, I never knew you. There was not a relationship there. Well, was there? See, did the people know the Lord? Yes, they did. They called him by his correct title. Did these Lord declares, were they sold out to him in ways they thought were pleasing to him? Yes. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did many mighty works. By the way, they had the power to do that. Who gave them that power? The Lord. But what got the Lord's attention with them on on the day of judgment? What was it that brought the Lord to the place where he said that he did not recognize them and know them? Simply put. These people did not give their hearts to Jesus. You may be thinking, Pastor, you're confused again. Jesus did not say that. Oh, but he did. See, these people did religious things. They knew him. But he did not know them. Why? Because of what he told them. He qualified this. He says, depart from me because you practiced lawlessness, your lifestyle was stubborn after your own ways. Jesus will tell many religious people on the day of judgment who even call him Lord, you lived your life in the stubbornness of your heart. Does that sound familiar? Deuteronomy 29. They were not loyal to Jesus because they were so busy living in sin. Their stubborn ways. Even though they would be considered by many people to be Christians, Jesus would say that he did not know them. Sobering words. Indeed. But there's hope. See, the Jesus who we will all stand before on one day is the same Jesus who is lifted up on a cross. He, the only flawless one, perfectly obeyed the Father. Hear him again speaking these amazing words to his disciples in John fourteen thirty-one. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know something, that they may know that I love the Father. See, Jesus went to the cross because he gave his heart to the Father before. And because he loved the Father, he obeyed his Father's commands. See, God implores us, give me your heart. Have you given him your heart? If so, continue to cultivate your heart relationship with him. It takes time to do this. Precious time that you're going to need to take away from other things. But eventually, it will show. Your very character will change. And he and you and we will see it in due time. Singer and songwriter, Honeytree. Don't you like that name, Honey Tree? had a big impact on my life even before I became a Christian. She was one of those plain Jane, you know, uh, hippie type people that uh, she abused drugs and all that kind of thing before she met Jesus. And I don't even know how I came across her music. And in many of her songs, Honey Tree sings about her simple faith, resting on what's so very apparent in her music that she gave her heart to Jesus. The lyrics of this song, Do You Love Me, have stayed with me for a long time. And they're written from the perspective of Jesus challenging his people into, in essence, to give their heart to him. And I think it's a good time to share these words with you. And with that, I'm going to close. Do you love me? Can you take my hand and walk alone? My path is narrow, tracked with tears. You'll sacrifice for many years. Do you love me? enough do you love me can you trust me with your life and soul when there are times we feel apart will you believe i'm in your heart do you love me enough enough to give me all your love enough to give me all your mind have you the faith to come with me and leave yourself behind Do you love me? Can you give me all you have to give? Your eyes, your hands, each word you say, and every thought you think each day. Do you love me? Enough. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May we truly treasure our Lord, for by so doing, we will answer his call that we are to give him our heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you indeed are the lover of our souls. Lord, you also love the Father. And because you love the Father and you gave him your heart, you were completely and absolutely obedient to what he told you to do. And Lord, we remember, we come together every Sunday morning, and at some some point in time, our minds go to the cross. Go to that place where all of our sin was placed upon you, Lord Jesus. And you cried out, it's finished. Paid in full, because you were obedient to the Father, because you loved the Father, because you gave the Father your heart. And now, Lord, you're asking us the same thing. Will we give you our hearts? So, Lord, I pray that that's true about every one of us in this room today and everyone under the sound of my voice. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to share these things through my own stammering lips at times. But, Holy Spirit, I pray you'll take these words, the words that were yours, seal them to the heart of your people. I thank you for this time. And I pray now, Lord, as we turn our attention to our giving and to our singing, that again, we would give you the praise, the glory, the honor by doing these things as acts of worship because you are so worthy. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and what you will do in our midst. Lord, help us to take these things that we've learned and to go out and apply them to our lives, to walk with you, to give you our hearts in Jesus' name.